We're in the book of Acts. We've come to um, what is perhaps, and I know, I know, I know, they laughed at me last night, so go ahead, you can. One of my favorite places in the Word of God. Um, and I know that I override, I override my own self by saying that. Um, and and it, it, it is true, I, I definitely mean it. But here we come upon a, a person that I think would be wise for us to understand. We're going to take a look at the heart of Saul. And we're going to see how the Lord brought him into service to minister. Now, we have been looking at, as I've already mentioned, in chapter 2, we saw Peter give a great message, uh, the sermon at Pentecost. And 3,000 people came to Christ. And, and so started the church. They then formulated the church with those people. And then we saw Peter and John preaching in the streets and healing people so as to verify their word and they were, they were arrested and they were beaten for their faith. Then we saw the church grow again. There was another 5,000. And, and by now there was, there was probably 20, 25,000, maybe more people that were, that were gathering together worshiping the Lord. And, and we saw in, in chapter, uh, I think it was chapter 6. I wrote it down just a while ago. Um, well, we saw Barnabas and, and, and Ananias and Sapphira, when the, the difference uh, between the two of them, how, how Barnabas was, was just his name, was a person of encouragement, and how he gave of some land to kind of help the church, and, and other people were giving. And, and then we saw the, the comparison between him and, and Ananias and Sapphira, who, 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 who wanted to give, but they just they wanted to, to look like they were doing more than what they were really doing. But after that, we saw the church became a little bit of a problem. Just a problem that, that, that happens within any family, with any group of people. And within the church, there were the Hellenistic Jews who, who felt that their widows were being slighted. That they weren't being served properly. And so they came. Remember, they came to the apostles. And here's, like, here's how the church functions. They, they came to those who were the, the leadership of the church, the apostles. And they said to them, we've got a problem here. Uh, um, our, our widows aren't being served, we don't feel properly. And, and so the apostles said, wow, look how, now I'm adding all of this, but they said, you know, basically, look how we're growing. Look, look how big we've become. And, 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 our, and our job here at this church is to study the Word of God and to, and to prepare a message and to teach and also to pray. So they said, choose from among yourself. Remember, seven people of, of, of integrity, seven people who were filled with the Spirit of God, seven people who can have wisdom to help solve this problem that you're having. And they did. And they solved the problem. It was, it was well with the people. That was a, a good solution. And they solved the problem. And out of those seven, we started to look at, in verses 6, 7, and, and 8, we saw uh, Stephen and we saw Philip. And then we got to compare them. We, we got to compare the longevity of a ministry of Philip and the, the shortness of the ministry of Stephen and how he died violently for his, for his faith. He was a martyr. Um, and so we looked at those two. And then we saw in the next chapter, in chapter 8, we, we saw uh, Philip go into Samaria. Remember? And, and, and there in Samaria, he came across that guy named Simon who was the magician. And, and, and Simon's heart was not right. And remember, we went to Matthew chapter 13 and we took a look at the four different soils. 
And, and we said that we ought to cultivate within our own lives, through the Word of God, a good soil. In other words, a good heart. So when the, the seed comes, so when the Word of God comes, it takes hold within our hearts and it bears fruit. It brings forth fruit. And it said in that in that parable, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. It, it didn't matter how much, just did it bear fruit? And so we saw the the life of Simon, the magician, who who his, his heart wasn't right. He wanted to buy his way in. And, and you remember, Peter said to him, "Oh, Simon, may your silver and gold perish with you. You you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God." And then we came across, uh, Philip was told by, a, by an angel of the Lord, go into towards the desert road, to go in towards Gaza. And, 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 and he, he was having a ministry that was flourishing in the villages in Samaria. And, 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 and on this road, it was just as it said, a desert road. There was nothing out there for him. And yet he went out of obedience. And out there, he came across a man. Remember, he was riding in his chariot, the Ethiopian unit. And he came across him, and the Ethiopian was reading out of the book of Isaiah. And when Philip ran alongside of his chariot, he asked him, do you, do you understand what you're reading? And, and he said, how can I, unless someone teaches me, guides me, helps me? And so he invited Philip into his chariot, and Philip explained to him where he was reading out of Isaiah, the very essence of Jesus Christ. Taught him out of that book, Jesus, who was going to come. And the Ethiopian's heart was touched, touched by that. And he saw some water and he said, what's preventing me from being baptized? And you remember Philip said to him, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe with all your heart that he is the son of man, you may. And he says, I do, I do believe. And they went there and they, were, they baptized him. And then Philip was out of his sight. And he was gone. And brings us to, to the eighth, ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And as I said to you last week, I'm going to say to you in, in a few more times as the weeks to come. If you look at verse 15, it said, The Lord said to Ananias, said to him, this is Ananias. What we're going to see now in chapter 9 is the same pattern that we have been seeing for the last four or five chapters. And that is a comparison of two individuals. This time, we're going to see the comparison between Ananias and Saul. And I say to you, the same thing that the Lord said to Ananias concerning Saul. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In the testimony that, uh, that Paul, later his name is changed from Saul to Paul. In chapter 26, we looked last week at, at Saul's, Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. Turn to Acts chapter 26, just for a moment. Let's refresh our memories, because this is critical to understanding um, this whole, the whole process in the life of Saul. And what I'm going to try to do, I'll tell you up front, 
is I'm going to try to convince you and me that we too are chosen instruments of God. I will prove that to you this morning. What I also want to prove to you is that there is none of us here in this room that is so far gone that, that we think we're not useful for the Lord because of what we have done or who we are. I want to show you that that is utterly, utter nonsense. That God wants to use you just as you are. Now, in, in, in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, 10, and 11, Paul stated to King Agrippa his hatred of all Christians. He is now giving his testimony here of, of who Paul is before the king. He says to the king in verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now you'll note, Paul now has the sense to understand that he was doing things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't understand that before. He does now, as we're going to see after chapter 9 starts to unfold. He says then in verse 10, This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only, he said, did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Remember I said last week, I said last week, can you imagine Paul? After he is converted and after he is told that he is going to reach people for the cause of Christ. And he would gather these people together and they would have a Bible study. And as any teacher would do, as he's teaching this Bible study, he would note something's wrong. Uh, Harold, uh, wow, uh, are you okay? Your, your countenance seems to be down. And, and Harold would look at him and say, countenance is down? You had my wife murdered. You put her in prison. You cast a vote to kill my wife. Is my countenance down? And I said to you last week, can you imagine Saul, Paul, can you imagine how he would have to put his head down on a pillow at night and fall asleep? Knowing that he is going to go back the next day to teach compassion, to keep, teach grace, to teach the kindness of God, knowing that he had killed some of the people that he is now teaching the love of Christ to. I say to you, he carried, he had to carry a heavy, heavy heart. And so it says there in verse 10, not only were they being put to death, but I said, kill them, kill them. Verse 11 says, I punished them often in all of the synagogues. I, I even tried to force them to blaspheme. In other words, he tried to coerce them into saying something wrong so he could put them in to jail to kill them. I tried to force them to blaspheme. He says, I was furiously angry at them. And I kept pursuing them, even into the foreign cities. And so that takes us to where we are now in chapter 9. Saul now is not, not satisfied that he ran them out of Jerusalem. He's not satisfied that he killed as many as he possibly could in the church in Jerusalem. No, now he wants to get a letter from the chief priest so that he can go to Damascus. So that he can follow, hearing that many of them perhaps went to Damascus. He is going to go to Damascus and hope to kill as many as he can, even in the foreign cities. But as we're going to see, 
Paul is about to have a life-changing experience. Before we start to read in chapter 9 from verse 1 to 19, but I want to say this to you, I'm going to cover it again in the next week or so, because trust me, there's too much here to just go over in one message. There's way too much. There's stuff that you and I must learn about who we are and about who God calls us and how God wants to deal with our lives, that we would just randomly go through this place in Scripture and not really take a look at Saul. I'm telling you, if you understand Saul, and if you understand Ananias, who also is mentioned in this particular place in Scripture, then you're going to understand yourself. And you will see for certain that you are a chosen instrument of God. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you and you and you and me. He has a, a plan that is unique to us and you. And He has a plan that's unique to all of us. That we must, we must see ourselves as who we truly are before the Lord. Chosen instruments of His. So, let me read, and then we'll go and, and make our point. Read with me in chapter 9, uh, from verses 1 to 19. Now it says, in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It came about as he was journeying, he, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he, Jesus, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Verse 9, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, verse 10 tells us, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who would call upon your name. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he arose and he was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. There is so much here. 
so much. Saul immediately, immediately understood there was something, something, something wrong with what his philosophy was of life. If you look at, again at, at, verses, at verse 9 and also verse 11, we see something very, very critical of what has taken place in the life of Saul. I say to you, he is fasting. He has neither eaten nor has he drank for three days. And also, as verse 11, that's verse 9, and also verse 11 tells us, Jesus says, go, because he is praying. He is praying. Now, I am bold enough to say to you that I think I know exactly what he is praying about. Because Paul gives testimony of what took place on the day that he was put down in the road on the way to Damascus. But first of all, I want to prove to you that you too are a chosen instrument. You and I, we are chosen instruments of God. Hold your place here and look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Critical to understand. Now, most people know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but you cannot really read and get to know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without knowing verse 10. They are, they are often not put t- together. Most people memorize verses, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but I don't hear them quote verse 10. But verse 10 is critical. Look what it says in Ephesians 2, 8. Most of you know it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. First, first and foremost, your salvation comes one way. It's packaged in one word, faith. Your faith and trust in who Jesus Christ is brings you salvation. Faith. For by grace, God's unmerited favor, you and I have been saved through faith. Faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift that God wants to give to you and to me. It says, verse 9, look, you cannot do it. It's not as a result of works. You can't work your way to heaven. That's what happened to Simon the magician. He thought, let me buy this. And Peter says, may your silver and gold perish with you. You can't. There's nothing in and of yourself that that you can earn this. You, You can't do it by your good works. You know why? Because God knows us. So that you will not boast. In other words, you and I cannot boast in who we are in Christ. Can't boast. Let's say there's some really, I did see, oh, I don't want to go with this rabbit trail. Let me just say that you and I cannot boast about anything that we do unto the Lord. Whatever gift it is that you and I might have, it has been given to us by God and He allows us to have it and He allows us to use it for His glory. And that's the only purpose that you and I have been given these wonderful gifts and this is the only reason that we are to use our gifts. I told Jewel, uh, if you don't mind me saying this, Jewel, I told him on the way down, I said, man, you have a beautiful voice. And I think he said to me at the time, praise the Lord. I mean, you know, thank you. It's not that he has a voice because he wanted it. He was given it. Most of us would like to sing good. We can't, most of us. 
It doesn't make us less than Him or more than Him. What God gives us, if we use for His glory, it is, it is the most precious thing we can do. Uh, now I see Anne. And, and, and that, that I could cry, so I'm not going to talk about Anne because she has been such a faithful servant of the Lord and such a faithful singer unto the Lord. I know of hardly no one I've ever met that just wants to praise God through her gift of singing. But my point is, is it's not by works. You cannot accumulate this faith as, as a result of anything you and I have done, lest the Lord, lest we should boast. Oh boy, isn't God lucky? He's got me. What would He do without me? Oh, He'd do a whole lot without you. But verse 10 is my statement to you that you and I are His instruments. You see, verse 10 says, we are, we are His workmanship. That word workmanship, it translates out to be poem. In other words, something He has created, something that is beautiful, a poem. It's, it's, we're His workmanship. Look, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, we can do good things. We can accumulate blessings, but only through our Lord, because He, we are His workmanship. We are His poems, if you would. We've been created in our Lord for good works, which, by the way, the rest of verse 10, God has prepared for us beforehand so that we would walk in them. Folks, I am here to say to you, that you are His poem. You are His workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus to do something good, something of value. And He, He Himself, has gone before you and me, and He has created this, this whatever it is that we are to do, He has given it to us so that we could walk in whatever it is that He has for us, I say to you, there is something out there for you. Something here in this church. I don't know where it is, but there is something for you, all of us here, that God has already prepared for us beforehand. It's already done. It, it's, it's His done, His workmanship. He's done it. All He asks of us, all He hopes of us, is that we will walk in it. That we will do what God has asked us to do. So God has set aside, folks, a ministry that is unique. That is unique for you and for me and you and me alone. He has prepared this ministry beforehand, hoping, hoping that you and I would walk in it. Now, there's some that won't. So what do you say? Will it not get done? Say God has to, has to, God wants to do this over here. And He asks you and me to do it. And we say, ah, I don't have the time. Ooh, I wish I had the time. If I had the time, oh, I'd, I'd do it. I'd be happy to do it. I just don't have the time. Oh, I don't have this, the intelligence to do it. I'm not smart enough. Find somebody else. I, I, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. And you're going to let somebody else. See, God will say, okay. I'll go to, I'll give it to her. She'll do it. And she's going to steal your blessing. She's going to steal the joy of ministry that was, that was prepared for you beforehand. 
All you and I have to do is walk in it. Don't let somebody else steal your blessings. If God has prepared it for us beforehand, He has paved the way for us. And you and I cannot fail in this process. No matter our past, this is what we're going to learn from Paul. No matter our shortcomings, this is what we're going to learn from Ananias. No matter our doubts or our fears, this we will also learn from Ananias. Our Lord has a ministry put aside, unique, just for you. You are, I am, we are, God's chosen instruments. He wants to use us. You see, just like Saul, we are a chosen instrument of the Almighty God. Now, go back to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to put all of this together in a moment. It'll fit, I promise. And, and I'm going to get us out of here even a little early, I hope. When Jesus Christ appears to Saul, and we're going to take a look more at this a little more next week, he asks him a question. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting all these Christians? It doesn't say that, does he? He says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I say to you, Saul never laid a hand on Jesus Christ. He never, he didn't, he didn't, didn't persecute him. But to strike a blow against God's people is to strike a blow upon God himself. You see, Saul persecuted believers, but his, his blow was directly upon the Lord. Saul, who was violent to Christians, had them killed, was all of a sudden brought face to face with the enormity of his crimes, not against Christians, but against Jesus Christ himself. Listen closely. Anyone, you know, if you believe there is a heaven, if you believe there is a hell, anyone who goes to hell does so ultimately because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps not because you persecuted Him, but to live apart from Jesus Christ makes a person as guilty as someone like Saul. Paul wrote later in his life, I'll make mention of it again in weeks to come. 1 Corinthians 16.22 He says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be accursed. The love of Jesus Christ is everything to those who walk this earth. Some say there are many ways to God, but, but the Bible does not preach that message. It doesn't allow us to, to say, oh, there are others that go another way and they're fine. No, Jesus said, you can't come to the Father but through me. can't be more clear. And so Paul says, if you do not love the Lord, let you be accursed. And Jesus said this, that the Holy Spirit, he says, would convict and condemn people. In John chapter 16, verse 9, concerning sin, Jesus says, because... They are judged because they do not believe in me. That's the issue. 
the crime of all crimes on this earth, which will condemn people eternally, is to refuse to follow and to love Jesus Christ. So, naturally, naturally, when Jesus Christ comes to Saul on the road to Damascus, read it clearly and understand it thoroughly. He didn't ask him, why did you do all these things wrong, Saul? He says, why are you persecuting me? And so the persecution that, that comes upon Saul overwhelms him. Obviously, he had a tremendous and very dramatic conversion. I mean, he was knocked off of his donkey. There he is, can't see all of a sudden. He hears this voice and saying, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. But what Saul's going to learn is that he is a chosen instrument. God has set aside for Saul a ministry. God has set aside for you and for me a ministry that is unique for us. He has paved the way as we learned in the book of Ephesians. He has already gone before you. He has already laid it out. All He asks for you, all He asks for me is that we would be willing to walk in it. That's all. The success of it, that's His. All that happens through it, that's His. In Stephen's life, he didn't live as long as Philip, did he? Was his life less successful? No, it was exactly what God wanted. The measurement is not ours. The measurement is God's. As a ministry, and He has paved the way that you and I cannot fail. Cannot fail. No matter your past, no matter your shortcomings, God is a ministry just for you. You are, we are, chosen instruments of God Almighty. And do you know why? Do you know why? I believe there are many churches that simply don't do all they should for the Lord. It's because we feel inadequate. We feel like we cannot be used by God. We feel that we are nobodies. You need someone better than me. You need someone smarter than me. You need someone more eloquent than me. You need someone that can really do it. I can't. Oh, Yes, you can, because God's already gone before you. He's already paved the way for you. All you have to do is walk in it. All you have to do is recognize what God has asked of you to do. You see, Satan would love for you and me to believe, us nobodies, to believe that we're not useful. I'm saying to you that you are now, I said to you a little while ago a very startling statement, I think, coming from me, saying that I know, I believe I know what Paul was fasting and praying about in, in, uh, in, in, in Acts, chapters 9 and, I mean, verses 9 and 11, forgive me. Turn with me, please, now, as we're going to close to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. I believe Paul tells us why he was fasting and praying. I believe he tells us what he was thinking. Listen to his thoughts. In Philippians, let me get there with you, please. Excuse me. Philippians chapter 3. We read this before last week. 
Let me, let me start at verse 2. Beware, he says, of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. That's, that's for those that... In other words, there isn't a lot of ways to understand God. There's only one way. But beware of those, he says, who are false, who do not teach the word of God. That's basically what he is saying. He says, but we, verse 3, we are the true circumcision. We who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Although, he says in verse 4, I myself might have some confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he said, he says, I was found, no, as to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, he said, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. But, he says, in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss, for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says. More than that. I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You see, what Paul is saying basically here is this. Everything, everything that I thought was of value that I thought was important in my life is meaningless, is loss, is rubbish without Christ. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, I've lost the self of my, my pride, my flesh, who I am. I lost it. He says in verse 5, my birthright... Being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being born in, in the tribe of Benjamin, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, all of my birthright, it's loss. All of my religious belief, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as far as the law was concerned, I'm blameless loss of no value to me. No value. I say to you, when he was laying there on that, that street called Straight in Damascus, when he was fasting and praying, I'm thinking he's thinking about all of his past, all the things that he has done, thinking that he was pleasing God. He is seeing these things were meaningless apart from Christ. Not only were they meaningless to me, he's saying, they are but lost. They are of no gain, of no value to me whatsoever. Being a Pharisee, being really smart. I believe Paul was really smart. He says, being a Pharisee, lost. Whatever things, he said in verse 7, were gained to me. These things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. You see it? Whatever was gained to Paul, whatever is gained to anyone apart from Jesus Christ is meaningless. It's lost. Paul says, my pride of self, gone. My birthright as a Jew, gone. My family religion, gone. My education, my smarts, gone. My position within the community, gone. Lost. Then in verse 8 of Philippians 3, he says, in case we've dozed off while he was speaking, he says, more than that, more than that, 
Good God, Paul, what more? He says, I count everything, all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Rubbish means dung, nothing but manure in, in order that I might gain Christ. You get the picture? Paul is saying all the stuff in his life apart from Jesus Christ is nothing but manure in comparison of knowing and loving the Lord. The question might be, what have you and I piled up in our life that we think is special that might keep us from Christ? I believe that Paul realized while he was laying there on the street called Straight in Damascus, he realized that his whole life was meaningless apart from Jesus Christ. That all the stuff that he had accumulated was worthless. Now what he is about to learn, as we're going to see next week, is that Jesus Christ is going to do what he does to any and every one of us that come to know him. He's going to pick him up. He's going to dust him off. And he's going to say, now Paul, go and do what I've called you to do. You're a chosen instrument of mine. You think about it. A chosen instrument? What have you done in your life? What have you and I done in our lives that was more severe than Paul? I would venture a guess that few of us here, if any, have had people killed. Few of us, if any, have uh, um, kind of forced people into blaspheming so that we could throw them into jail and have them murdered. And yet, in the process of that being his background of his life, Jesus said to Ananias, we know Ananias, when his doubts and fears, says, Hey, uh, have you heard about Saul? Have you heard about all the harm he's doing to those that follow you in Jerusalem? We've been talking around the square, Jesus. We hear he's blind. Let's keep him like that. No, Jesus says, go, Ananias. By the way, you know how many times Paul is mentioned in the New Testament? I don't. I don't know, it's, it's a lot. You know how many times Ananias is mentioned in the New Testament? I do. This is the only place. He is a chosen instrument of God used for that moment to do what he has been called to do in the life of Saul. Jesus says, I know what he's done. I know everything about him. Go, because... I don't want to break this to you, Ananias. He's a chosen instrument of mine. In other words, I love him, and I got a wonderful plan for him, just as I do for you, Ananias. And to Ananias' credit, he went. But I like what Ananias said. He says, Brother Saul, he <laughs> kind of, oh, buddy, Jesus, who knocked you down on the road, told me to come and see you. You know, he's kind of paved his way. I'm here to say to you that there's nothing that you and I have done that can stop our Lord from using us greatly in our future. It goes back to what I've been trying to say. I don't care. I don't care how you came to Christ. I care how we finish. I care what we are going to do for our Lord this afternoon and tomorrow and all the tomorrows that the Lord God may give us. That 
That's what I care about. I want to build within my life and hopefully your life a desire to serve the Lord all the days that I have on this earth and that you have on this earth. I want us to be chosen instruments of God who do not miss our blessings. Father God, thank you so much for comparisons within the Word of God. It kind of gets down to my level, Lord. It's hard for me to to try to conform myself into your son's image, Father, because he's so perfect, and I'm not, and you know it. I know that's why he came. I know it. To help me be conformed into his image. But, Father, thank you for Saul. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Ananias. Thank you for Barnabas. Thank you for men and women within the Word of God that I can kind of put my arms around and kind of see that they're somewhat like me. They've failed. I mean, King David. Thank you for them, Father. It gives me hope. It gives me hope so that I can be conformed into your Son's image. May none of us here this morning, Father, miss the blessings that we have that you've already prepared for each one of us individually beforehand. All you ask of us, are we willing to walk in them? I am. I want to, Father. I want to. And sometimes I'm like Ananias, Father. I must confess. Sometimes, Lord, I get so much doubts and fears, and I think to myself, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever. And I fail to remember that you've already paved the way for me. All I need to do is walk in it. And so, Lord, whatever it is that we are doing here at this church, may we continue. And may we continue, Father God, to serve you. Each of us, not just a few. May we be such a unique church that isn't have the 10 or the 20% of the church doing uh, 80 to 90 to 100% of the work, but may we, may we be a church that finds 100% of us doing whatever it is that you've called us to do. If that happens, Lord, oh my goodness, what a church. If that happens, Lord, what an impact. We'll do things that will boggle the minds of people across this world. And maybe just by your grace, we can be an encouragement. As Brother Mark said to me last night, how did you find so many volunteers? How did you find so many people to help serve? And I said, I didn't, Mark. Our Lord did. I just reminded them of their heritage. I just reminded them of what our Lord has asked us all to do. And, and so many already have taken up the, the task of walking in what God has already prepared for them. And so I realize, Father, that we're doing well. It's just my nature, dear God, that I would love for everyone to sense that blessing. And so, Father, would you please quicken our hearts to believe with all of our hearts that regardless of our past, regardless of our inadequacies, that we truly are chosen instruments of yours. We're your workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that you have prepared for us. 
beforehand already done. All you want us to do is walk in them. May we do that, Father, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Wow, I just love you so much. Um, have a great day. It's, have a great day. I love you so much. So see you next week, okay?